we serve a God who, even in the face of danger, even in the face of Good Friday, of crucifixion, even in the face of what we human beings are doing to each other, and let alone what they're going to do to God, like, that is a God that is not running Mm. from danger. Hello, and welcome back to an Easter weekend edition of the Christian Civics Podcast, exploring how the gospel empowers us to think, speak, and act differently in the public square. I'm your host, Rick Barry, the co-founder and executive director of the Center for Christian Civics, and I'll be your host this week for the next part of our interview with Dr. Kurt Thompson. Dr. Thompson is a psychiatrist in private practice in Falls Church, Virginia. He's the author of several books, uh, Anatomy of the Soul and The Soul of Shame, and he's the founder of the Center for Being Known, which tries to help educate and equip leaders in the church with lessons from the study of uh, interpersonal neurobiology. A couple weeks ago, we brought you part one of my interview with him, where he started sharing about why it's important to actually have real-life interactions with people you disagree with in the church. This week, we're bringing you part two. This part's going to be a little bit shorter because I wanted to try to keep this one limited to the section where he was talking about Good Friday, where he was talking about the same events that we're all thinking and praying a lot about this weekend. In the last episode, we left the conversation uh, right as Dr. Thompson was uh, encouraging us to think about who we know, who we have some significant differences with, who we could actually sit down with and have uh, a real embodied interpersonal face-to-face conversation with over a cup of coffee, over a meal. Uh, But one of the things he mentioned before that is that conversations like that can sometimes trigger in us kind of the same feelings or the same reactions that get stirred up when survival is at stake. So this week, we're going to jump right back into the conversation, right as I'm asking him why conversations like that can frequently feel like survival issues. He mentioned that uh, these can often feel like conversations where survival is at stake. When you're having that conversation with someone who is very different from you, it can feel like a survival issue. Why is that? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, you know, I, I think um, one, one of the things we do in my field, one of the things I, I, I try to do with patients is we, we say, uh, you know, uh, we, we tend to live better lives when we actually um, follow uh, the way the brain actually works. And shorthand, uh, w- words that I like to use for folks in terms of understanding how the brain works is, the brain tends to work bottom to top and right to left. And by that we mean uh, when you're first being formed in the uterus, it's you start with a neural tube, and at the top of the neural tube comes the brainstem. And the brainstem is the part that is in charge of our fight-or-flight mechanisms. And so the first thing and the oldest thing and the thing that we are paying the most attention to all the time is, is this next thing I'm in, the next step I take, is it survivable? Hmm. And so survival, this sense of being okay, being safe, is the first and primal thing that our brain is constantly monitoring the environment for. 
And out of the brainstem, then comes what we call the limbic circuitry. And limbic circuitry is the thing that we share with other lower mammals, the sense of uh, our, our sense our felt sense of feeling in the world. So emotional states. There are some animals, snakes and so forth, that we'd say are reptiles that don't have feelings as far as we can tell. There are other animals like dogs that we can sense their feelings. And we have feelings like dogs have feelings. And then out of this limbic circuitry, the larger, uh, more intricate, more complex parts of the brain that develop that are mostly like humans, right? So our prefrontal cortex, the top part of the brain and the front part of the brain, it gives us reasoning, gives us creative ability, gives us the capacity to assess consequences for our choices and so forth and so on. But one of the things that we, uh, that we have to never forget is that like that brainstem, that part of us that's always thinking about survival is always thinking about survival. And so, so much of what's taking place in the course of our daily activity is being filtered through that. But most of our life for most people is safe enough that we're not really having to think about that consciously, but it doesn't mean that our brainstem isn't always doing that work. One of the things that the gospel tells us is that we serve a God who, even in the face of danger, even in the face of Good Friday, of crucifixion, even in the face of what we human beings are doing to each other, and let alone what they're going to do to God, like that is a God that is not running mm. from danger. Now, the challenge is that uh, when the brain is in danger, it will seek to isolate itself in order to protect itself against that danger. But the thing that the brain needs most when it feels that it's in danger is not just protection in some abstract way, but the brain needs is connection with other brains who will be with it. Our sense of distress in the world is not just about danger per se, it is about the danger of being alone. Again, reflecting Genesis in this verse where God says in Genesis 2, 18, it is not good for the man to be alone. It is aloneness, isolation in that sense, not solitude in the spiritual direction sense, but aloneness is not good. This is what hell is all about. This is where it all begins. This is where hell begins, the sense of being alone. To your question, uh, most of uh, our interactions um, are then filtered through the brainstem if we're not careful. And so we're walking into conversations already with our brainstem on high alert, our limbic circuitry, our amygdala already telling us that this is a conversation that's going to be dangerous. As opposed to, what does it mean for us, for me to see again, back to our moment ago, we were talking about, what does it mean for me to walk into a conversation in which my mission is to make contact? My mission is not to correct you. My mission is not to show that I'm right and you're wrong. My mission is going to be to breach over the wall that is between us. That's the mission. This is not uh, what most Republicans, Democrats are thinking about. They think their mission is to convince the other side that they're right. Their mission is not necessarily to make contact with others. The Gospels all is very different about that. Now, that doesn't mean that we have to dissolve our differences. It is about making contact in the face of differences. Hey, everyone. It's Rick again. I just want to let you know the conversation got interrupted right here. Uh, it was only interrupted for a minute, but it did kind of break up the flow of thoughts. And as we came back together... Dr. Thompson uh, went from talking about uh, why the way our brain is wired, 
makes those conversations hard to have well, to um, the way our family backgrounds make those kinds of conversations hard to have well. I, th- I think that we, uh, we underestimate uh, also the power of the memory of our families. You might wonder, like, what, what, what are you talking What's that got to do with anything? Hmm. Well, as I, I tell people when we, we, when we see patients who are having trouble with, with their jobs, we say, like, one of the things that's important to remember that we always take our families to work. We take our families into conversations about politics. We take our families with us wherever we go. And what we mean by that is uh, we take our attachment patterns, the ways in which we have learned how to relate to other human beings is deeply connected to how we've attached as infants, as toddlers, to our primary caregivers. And that attachment process itself is a complex intersection of both embodied and relational interchanges that uh, are some of the most formative ways in which we then come to like make decisions without even being aware of how we're doing it, make predetermined decisions about how relational interactions are going to go. And then when we get these attachment patterns like wrapped in politics, we make the mistake of thinking that anytime there's similarities or differences that these are largely around these things we call political ideas, when in fact there are far more powerful forces at work that aren't just about the abstractions of political thought. They're about, well, gosh, do I feel comfortable with this person in terms of like the way they sound, the way mm-hmm. they look? Are they paying attention to me? Do they, are they kind to me? Are they welcoming to me? Do I feel like I can, you know, that I can have a rupture with this person? I can have a, I can have an argument with this person. I can have a disagreement. There can be a a rift in our relationship, and we can repair that. Those kinds of forces are at work long before my logical, linear, rational left brain is bringing political thought to the table. These are things that we're not paying that much attention to. And so when we have disagreements with people politically, we think that our disagreements are largely about our political philosophies, when in fact I would suggest that our quote-unquote disagreements are far more powerfully embedded in things that are beyond and before our political thought. Our tendency to want to be safe, then, um, is really wrapped in the question of, if this person does disagree with me, not just about politics, but about anything, uh, what am I afraid is going to happen? What's going to happen to me? What are they going to think about me? What's that going to feel like? If they were angry with me about anything, not just about politics, what's my interpretation of that? How do I think that they think about me as a human being? If if we disagree about the economic distribution of wealth, does that mean that I interpret that they think that I'm an idiot? Uh, Because if that's what I'm thinking, even if those aren't the words that I'm using, then I'm going to be very, very defensive about that. Because like, who likes to be thinking, who likes to be thought of as an idiot? But if I'm, if I assume that when we disagree, if I assume that you're just going to be more curious about me instead of judging me, I'm going to be far more willing to stay in the conversation with you, even if on the surface we're saying to each other that we disagree about things. Because my curiosity and my, my assumption about your curiosity about me and your interest in me fundamentally 
is superseding these other things that we are using to you know, get ourselves together in the first place, conversations about politics. So if your mission is to make contact, the other person is going to be more willing to work with your mission if you're demonstrating patience, hospitality, curiosity, generosity, gentleness. All those things, exactly. And my capacity to practice those things that you're talking about, which I think is really, I think it's a really splendid way of describing, like, what is it that I really want to be? Not just what I want to think and what I want to prove, what I want to be. If I'm practicing those things, practicing generosity, practicing hospitality, I will tell you, it's really difficult for people to resist that. I don't know a lot of people who, if you were to offer them to say, gosh, I'm going to give you the opportunity to be someplace where somebody's going to be hospitable, kind, generous. Would you like to go there or not? I don't know a lot of people who would. Okay, that was part two of our interview with Dr. Kurt Thompson. There's a part three coming in a week or two, I swear, really, a week or two this time. Uh, There may also end up being a part four, or maybe part three will be extra long, or maybe we'll end up doing exactly what I said I was hoping we might be able to not do this time around, and just lob off the last part of it and make... um, part four available to our donors and our supporters. Uh, By the time we get part three out there, we will let you know if there's going to be a part four, and if so, how you can hear it. But before we move on to prayer together, there are a couple points Dr. Thompson made in part two of this interview that I want to stop and think about uh, a little bit more slowly or savor a little bit. The first one I want to talk about is right at the end, uh, where he asked, when we have these uh, hard encounters with other people, one of the questions we have to ask ourselves is, what am I afraid is going to happen? That was a question that was really on my mind a lot this week. I had kind of a stressful series of emails with a group of other people people. Every time there was another round of emails or I saw like another one pop up in my inbox, I felt my stomach tighten up and I was like, oh, I don't want to open that. And I had to ask myself, why, what am I afraid of? Why am I getting so nervous or tense every time I see this chain pop back up? Uh, Is it that I feel like my time is too important to be spent on uh, a conversation that's taking far more time and energy and words than I think is efficient? Uh, Is it because I'm so afraid of other people's esteem that I don't want to revisit a conversation where I'm in a state of frustration and misunderstanding with other people? In the grand scheme of things, that is a really low-stakes conversation. Uh, It got resolved it got resolved well, but some of those dynamics there were also similar to what I think some of us might end up feeling when we get into a conversation with someone where we talk about deep differences and it starts feeling like a survival thing. And that brings me to the point Dr. Thompson made that I wanted to bring up uh, right at the beginning of this conversation. Uh, he talked about Good Friday. He talked about uh, that Jesus went to the cross, uh, not hoping for his own safety or nervous for his own safety, but absolutely sure that it would not be safe. 
he knew what he was afraid of and he did end up uh, getting the thing he was afraid of inflicted upon him, separation from his father, um, exposure to and intimacy with the sin and brokenness of humanity in a way that he had never experienced before. Uh, Death, which he had never tasted and by all rights should not have had to. Uh, He says in his prayers in uh, the book of John that the things he was about to do, he wasn't doing Uh, And the things he was praying, he wasn't praying just for himself, but for the sake of his apostles and the people who would believe in him because of the apostles, that because of his prayers and because of his work, they could be one with one another. One of the epistles called that the joy set before him, the unity of the people who believe in him and claim his name. That is us. Our ability to have these conversations, these hard conversations about things we disagree about deeply, and still be united in friendship, in fellowship, in sacrificial love for one another, in a way that is astounding to the world around us, is the reason Jesus went to the cross uh, on this weekend about 2,000-odd years ago. So, Before we say a prayer of thanks for that, uh, I just want to toss one thing out at you really quickly. If you're in the D.C. area, go to our website right now, christiancivics.org. Go to Upcoming Events and register for Healing Our Divided Politics on April 7th. Uh, This is going to be a two-hour event next Saturday, April 7th, featuring... um, Me and a couple other guest speakers we're really excited about, including Aaron Jenkins of The Expectations Project, exploring a few different ways that people of faith can practice our unity with one another in public, in visible ways, in a divided political climate. If you're a subscriber to this podcast or if you read our blog, this is absolutely the kind of thing you're going to be interested in. So go to our website, christiancivics.org and sign up today. Now, please join me in prayer. Heavenly Father, this weekend we commemorate the sacrifice of your Son and your power to redeem us even after the most brutal and cataclysmic of sacrifices. We commemorate the sacrifice of your Son, and we thank you for what you've done for us in that. We confess that we don't always love like we should. We are not always as brave and courageous as we should be. We are not always as calm and patient as we should be. And your son atoned for that. We also thank you for the fact that we're not just commemorating a sacrifice this weekend. We are celebrating a resurrection. We are celebrating our future. We are celebrating the ultimate evidence that no matter what we are afraid of as we go into situations that are painful, situations that are uncomfortable, situations that uh, are inconvenient or sacrificial for us, um, there is nothing we can endure so bad that it will overshadow the glory you are going to shine through us. We ask that the commemoration of Maundy Thursday and Good Friday make us humble and bind us together 
and the celebration of Easter, of the resurrection this weekend, make us jubilant and courageous and willing to go into hard relationships, into hard uh, places, and into hard responsibilities joyfully. In the name of your Son, who promises all these things to us and more. Amen. Thank you all very much. We'll be back in a couple weeks. 